When I was 30 years old, Coach Wayne Gordon and his wife Anne adopted me. I attended their dating seminar at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes conference in Michigan. I learned to date based on biblical principles. Genesis 2.21 So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man, and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The coach said to me, You need to sleep now while God is making a suitable partner for you. You are not to be on the prowl. I spent several nights with the Gordons in their home on Ogden Avenue in Chicago. One hot summer night, Coach's parents were there. Only one bedroom had air conditioning. The five of us slept in that bedroom. Coach's parents had the bed. Coach, Ann, and I slept on the floor. In the morning, all of us awoke refreshed. When Gretchen and I were engaged, Coach and Ann were our premarital counselors. They have an excellent winning percentage. When Gretchen and I got married, Coach was the minister. After Super Bowl XX, which the Bears won, Gretchen and I went back to the bedroom that we were sharing with Coach and Ann. The four of us engaged in a good pillow fight. My wife was my bunker. Then we talked and laughed until 2 o'clock in the morning. Thanks to Coach, I know who my neighbor is. My neighbor is everyone, even those who are not yet Bear fans. (laughs) Neighbors, Coach will have three books for sale in the back of the church after the service. Real Hope in Chicago, Who is My Neighbor, and Leadership Revolution. When I think about Coach, I hear my father, Ed McCaskey, sing Bear Down Chicago Bears, and I rewrite the lyrics. Here's to Coach Wayne Gordon. He matriculated at Wheaton College. Here's to Coach Wayne Gordon. He has a lot of biblical knowledge. We'll never forget the way he lives the gospel for Christ and his kingdom. Here's to Coach Wayne Gordon. And let them know why you're wearing your ring. Your romance with Anne is a lifelong thing. Here's to Coach Wayne Gordon. Thank you, Pat. Well, it's great, great to be here and uh, great to be with Pat and Gretchen, our lifelong friends, and uh, great to be here. I'm a pastor, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not, don't expect some kind of eloquent speech or all that stuff, and, and don't, don't expect me to finish on time. I'm a pastor, all right? And so, you know, I love the church. I love the church of Jesus Christ, and uh, if I wasn't here today, I would be home in Lawndale at church with our people and just having a fabulous time together. Church is really what God has ordained 
ordained. It's God's ordained change agent in the world. And it's so important for us to be the church and to be people who gather in the name of Jesus Christ. And then after we gather, we scatter into the world to take the good news of our gospel there. And so I love being in church. And, I, and, I love, and, and Christ Church of Lake Forest, I want you to know, I mean, I'm not on the circuit. I'm not one of those circuit guys. You've never heard of me. I'm not a big deal. I'm just a local pastor who loves Jesus and loves the church. And, uh, and so I, I'm here at Christ Church of Lake Forest for a couple reasons. One is because I love Pat and Gretchen McCaskey and their family. And, and, and being their church, I, wanted to, I like to be at places where I love somebody and have a relationship. But secondly, your pastor and many of your church leaders, Alex included, came to visit us in Lawndale a couple times. And your pastor, when Mike came to sit down and talk with me, we sat and we visited. Just the two of us in my office one day. And I could hear the heart of your pastor. That even though Christ Church of Lake Forest is in an affluent community, you have a heart to live out the good news of Jesus Christ in some ways that, that maybe some churches just don't do today to the sadness of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I came today just to, to, just to be a little bit a part of that. And hopefully together today we can think and dream. So glad for our gospel choir here. I mean, I wanted to get up and dance a little bit, you know. But, you know, here, I mean, I tried to restrain myself just a little, you know. Now, now I hope some of you can get, I got an amen corner, I hope, today. Last night when I preached here, Carl was my only amen guy. And, I mean, you know, I, I need a little help. I need a little response. And last night they had me confined to this carpet. But I, gotta, I can move a little bit more, I think, today. But, but anyway... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just glad to be here. Now, you know what? It's, in August, I have this unbelievable blessing. In August, I'm going to start my 39th year living and working in Lawndale. And, and, and it's such a blessing for me. It's such a blessing for me. And, and, you know, when I first started, I, I'm, a, I'm a white guy, just graduate from Wheaton, move into the inner city. I got a job teaching and coaching at the local high school, Farragut High School on Chicago's west side. And when I got this job, I knew that if I was going to have any kind of impact, I needed to live in the neighborhood where the kids lived. And so as I started to look around, I found out that there were no other white people that lived in North Lawndale. I integrated North Lawndale. I got married, the white population doubled, two kids had doubled again. And so, you know, it's fun to at least be a statistic even if you can't have success. But anyway, uh, I move into Lawndale, and I, I, I got I to confess to you. I came thinking I knew what I was doing. I just graduate from Wheaton. I think I know all the answers. I move into Lawndale. I'm a teacher at the local high school, and I came to be a teacher. But God needed to work in my heart. And so my first year there, uh, I, I, I went home to Iowa. I grew up in Iowa, and I go home. I flew home to Iowa for, for Christmas, and I had an old green van, and it was parked in front of my apartment there on 15th and Kedzie. And I, and I went home, and I flew back, and I caught a cab at O'Hare, took the cab down, and I get in front of my apartment where my van is, and my van did not look the same as when I had gone home. That window that used to be there to keep me warm had been broken out in the driver's side, and my spare tire that used to be bolted down in the back had been unbolted and was now moved, and it was actually in, sitting right in the driver's seat. 
And I thought, what in the world is going on? I get inside, and Mrs. Washington's there, and I say to Mrs. Washington, I said, yeah, you know, my van got broken. She said, yeah, hurry up. You're supposed to call the police. I said, what happened? She said, just call the police. Don't ask me any more questions. I said, okay. I call the police, and the police then come, and I go outside, and I wait for the police to come. When the police got there, they, they, I went up to the, the squad car, and they said, well, we're looking for the owner of this van. I said, well, it's me. They said, it can't be you. And I said, well, why? They said, because they said the owner of the van lives in that building right there. And I know there ain't no white people on this block. And, and, and I said, no, I live there. They said, you live there? The police officer said to me, I said, yes. They said, this is unbelievable. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, first of all, we, we didn't know that it, you lived here. We didn't know any white people lived on this block. But then secondly, they said that two, you know, somebody was breaking into your van, and the guy that lives two doors down, they pointed the apartment building two doors down from me. They said, the guy that lives in that building was breaking into your van. And several people on the block called the police. This was the day before 911. This is when you, when you called the police, you had to give them your name, your address, your phone number, your social security number, your mother's maiden name to get them to come out, all right? That, some of you remember back in the day. But you know what happened was is that the, the police then, several people on my block called the police on this neighbor of theirs who was breaking into my van. They said, this is unbelievable. And then they said, and we responded, our police officers responded, and got here while he was still in the act of stealing it. Now, they didn't know it, but I think that might have been the most unbelievable thing in Chicago, that the police responded that quickly. But they got there, they got, caught the guy, and then they took him off to jail, but then they put my tire in the front seat with the door unlocked. And they said, and your tire is still here. We can't believe it's still here. That was two days ago. And I said, yeah, it is unbelievable. I, you know, so anyway, I go back into my apartment. And I t- start talking. I, Mrs. Washington's there, and I start to talk to Mrs. Washington. And Mrs. Washington said to me, she said, yeah, you know, and we began to talk about the story. And, I, and afterwards I said, and can you believe that two days later my tire is still here? She said, well, of course it's still there. Because we set up a neighborhood watch. And hour by hour, we watched your van to make sure nobody stole that tire. Then she said, get out there and get it. We're not watching anymore. So I quickly went out, got my tire, brought it into my apartment. But that night when I went to bed, God did something in my life. See, I had come thinking I had answers, thinking I knew what was going on. But when I went to bed that night, and I I was lying in my bed, and I began to pray, as I do every night before I go to bed, God began to speak to my heart. I realized for the first time in my life, I was living amongst a group of people who were living out a dream. It was a part of the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You remember part of his dream was that people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. For the first time in my life, I began to realize I was living amongst a group of people like that. And then that night, God said, son, I want you to know something. I didn't hear a voice, but in my heart, God's spoken to your heart before. And in your mind, and in my heart and mind, I I heard God say, Son, you thought I brought you here to be a teacher. That's not why I brought you here. And he did a role reversal and turned it upside down. He said, I brought you here to be a student, to be a pupil. And I can honestly say, over 38 years later, that the people of Lawndale have taught me far more than I've taught them. As a school teacher, I inherited a classroom. 
And this classroom, it was the second semester, and the teacher already had an assigned seat. So when I got into the, cla- into the, into the school and into my classroom, it was a 7.45 class, first period, 7.45 in the morning. I get in there, and the students all are sitting in their assigned seats. And after a day or two, I noticed that there was an empty seat in the front row that had been empty several days. I look in the grade book, and I called the phone number that was there, and it, it was disconnected. And then I think I wrote a note or something, and I, it came back, address unknown. And after two weeks of not knowing where this student was, he had missed my class for two weeks in a row, I finally did something a little bit creative. I asked the kids. I said, does anybody know when I called this young man by name? I said, anybody know where he is? He hasn't been to class since I've been your new teacher for the last two weeks. Anybody know anything about him? And one of the kids in the back of the room said, oh, coach, you're talking about Top Cat. That's his nickname, Top Cat. I said, yeah, I guess so, Top Cat. Anybody know anything about Top Cat? They said, yeah. I said, does he ever come to school? They say, yeah, he comes, but he doesn't come early. He works at the gas station up there on 16th and uh, up on 16th and Christiana and he, he gets here late because he works the night shift he works all night and he's late for school he gets here about division time and I said well you know if you ever see him would you introduce him to me that afternoon as I was walking down the hall of Farragut High School all of a sudden I heard one of my students say coach coach come here hey top cat come here and right in the middle of the hallway at Farragut High School I saw top cat and when I saw Top Cat, I said, I shook, Top Cat, hi, I'm Mr. Gordon. I'm your first period teacher, and you missed class. And he said, yeah. And I said, hey, Top Cat, you know what? You're failing my class. And then you know what I did? I grabbed him by the shoulder. You ever had a pastor grab you like this before? And I said, listen. I said, you know what? I said, you're failing my class, but I know you can make it. I know you can pass my class. He looked me in the eye, and he said, Mr. Gordon, I'll be there tomorrow. Sure enough, Top Cat was a man of his word. Next morning, when I walked into my classroom, in that seat right where Garth is, that seat right there, I like that when I get to hit him with my Bible, you know. <laughs> you wonder why pastors carry, I got a little Bible here, but you know, it's, I can still get you. But anyway, don't count that on my time, all right? And that, that's your time, Garth. Okay. <laughs> so anyway... What happens is, is that I walk in there, Top Cat's there, and Top Cat was a man of his word, he's there sitting in that seat, and you know what, Top Cat, if you're a school teacher, he's the kind of student you just hope you get to teach, because Top Cat became, was an F student, became a D, C, B, A, he became my prize student in that class. He was engaged, did a wonderful job. After about three or four months... One morning I walked into the classroom and the seat was empty again. I wait a couple minutes, 7.46, By 7.50, I couldn't wait anymore because Top Cat had never missed class and he had never been tardy since he started coming back. And so I said to the kids, I said, I remarked, Top Cat's not here today. And they said, no, uh, he missed he, and, and they said, Coach, you didn't hear about Top Cat? I said, no, what? They said, at the gas station last night, there was a holdup. Top Cat got shot. He's dead. I can literally remember like that, that moment like it was yesterday. I remember sitting down at my desk. I couldn't teach that day. The students went on with their life it's just like they were telling me he had a cold or had gotten the flu but this was my prized student and he was dead 
And I sat there with tears streaming down my cheeks. And I just said, take your book out and read the chapter today. That night when I went home, I quickly looked at all the newscasts, 2579 in Chicago, nothing about Top Cat. Next morning, I bought the Sun-Times, the Tribune, the Defender, the neighborhood, the newspaper, the African-American community, nothing about Top Cat. Do you know I wasn't even able to go to Top Cat's funeral because I didn't know when it was or where it was? I'm not even to this day sure he had one. But Top Cat is one of those nameless and faceless people that are the statistics of our world. Nobody hears about them. Last year, over 500 people were murdered in the city limits of Chicago. Last Saturday, we had a funeral of a murder victim in our church. We've had far too many. And as I began to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in an environment like that, I began to wonder, God, what is it that you want me to do? How do I do this? And one day when I was praying about that, God led me to a passage in Scripture that I want to talk with you about a little bit today. And that passage of Scripture is found, first of all, in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, the experts in the law come up to Jesus and they ask him a question. They say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he said, and there's a second one just like it, and that is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That became my life verse. The motto of Lawndale Community Church is loving God and loving people. And we began to work to do that. Mark chapter 12 is a parallel passage. And in Mark chapter 12, the at, one word's added, and it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But now, what I really want to focus on is Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. And John's going to come up and read Luke 10, beginning with verse 25. Because I want us to hear the reading of this. And listen to this to see what it is. And to see a little bit of the difference, maybe, between the Matthew passage and the Mark passage. But John will read uh, Luke 10, beginning with verse 25. Good morning. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the, in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. 
And when he saw, the, saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wound, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you, you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen. Thank you, John. Now, I wish we, I wish we were in a setting of a, a more of a classroom and I could sit down and, and we could have a discussion about this. And, and one of the things that I would ask you if we were going to do that, I would say, all right, what's the difference between the Luke 10 passage and the Matthew 22 and Mark 12? Now, we, we haven't had time to do that, so I'm just going to spoon feed you for a moment, and I'm going to tell you the difference a little bit. But uh, help me and think about this. Now, first of all, in, in Matthew 22, they came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest command? Jesus then responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And there's a second like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the core essence of this passage now here the expert in the law similar type person comes up to jesus and says he asks a different question what must i do to inherit eternal life now i think this expert in the law had understood that the essence of what it means to be a christian if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, you know that you are going to spend eternity with God in heaven. So this is a question, is what does a Christian look like? What does it really mean to be a Christ follower? That's the question. Now Jesus, when he answers him, he answers him a little different. He answers with a question. Again, different than Matthew 22. I think this is a different situation. I think it's a different circumstance. As a matter of fact, my guess is, and it's only a guess, we have no biblical evidence for this other than the passage itself, but my guess is that this expert in the law was present during the Matthew 22, Mark 12 passage situation with Jesus. And Jesus probably looked out and recognized him You know, and said, oh, you were in that meeting with us. You know, you know the answer to this question. He says, so he, Jesus asks him back a question. What do you think you need to do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what is it, what do you think it means to, the essence of what it means to be a Christian and to be a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ? The man then answered. He said, catch his answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Did you catch that? Jesus gave, was asked what's the greatest commandment, and he said two. He said, love God with all your heart. There's a second one just like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Most of us, when we read that, we say, the most important thing I need to do as a follower of Jesus Christ is to love God with everything I have. John tells us in John 14, if you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. That means that we are going to be obedient to Christ. We're going to love and we're going to do what God calls us to do. But then there's a second one, and we put it underneath here as the second one. And I'm going to love God with everything I have, and then if I have a chance, I'll love my neighbor. Most of us never get to number two. 
Now, Jesus elevated that. He said, love the Lord your God, and he elevates it up to the same plane. He says there's a second one just like the first. So the essence of what the most important thing for us to do is to love God and to love our neighbor. Now, here, this expert in the law in Luke chapter 10, if you look closely, he takes then the second like it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He put them together. He got it. It was an aha moment for this guy. He had gotten the point. But then, in the text in Luke, it goes on. And it says that this expert in the law, wishing to justify himself. In other words, he thought he was loving God and loving his neighbor. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Hmm. Now, when we ask ourselves who is our neighbor... We answer with American Western definition of neighbor. Look in the dictionary. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is somebody that lives close to you, lives in close proximity. Your neighbor is somebody that lives next door, my next door neighbor. Somebody that lives in your cul-de-sac, come, lives in your little community. That's our neighbor. And so what we do when we start to obey this command, we just try to love those people around us. But you see, Jesus gave us a Jesus definition. Luke chapter 10 gives us the Jesus definition of who is our neighbor because he then proceeds to tell us the story that is commonly known as the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you look closely at that story, you'll notice that many preachers preach this story. We all talk mostly about the Samaritan and say, go and be like him. That is right, but that's not the point of this parable that Jesus tells. The purpose of him telling this is to answer the question of the expert in the law, which is, who is my neighbor? And we will never know who our neighbor is unless we look at who is the man beaten up on the side of the road. If we can discover who he is, We will know who our neighbor is so that we might be obedient to live out this great command of Scripture to love God and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You see, the story of the Good Samaritan gives us the Jesus definition of neighbor. Now, I've got got a lot of characteristics of the man beaten up on the side of the road. In fact, that's, that's the topic of the book, Who is My Neighbor? And I've got 40 different Yes, that's right, 40. I preached this at Lawndale. I preached 40 points in one sermon. Now, it took me about 15 weeks to do it. But anyway, I only got about five minutes with you. So anyway, we got, we got to rush through this. But the question is, when you come to this, you, you study this on your own. I, can't, I don't have time to, to explain it all to you. So I want you to study this passage in Luke chapter 10 and keep asking yourself the question, who is the man beaten up on the side of the road? Now, one of the things that I've tried very hard to do is to not go outside the biblical word and the text. So every one of my 40 points that I have, those all come directly from Scripture, not just somebody thinking about who your neighbor might be. But let's, let's, just, let's just take a stab at a few of them, okay? First of all, the one that is most obvious, here's this man, beaten up on the side of the road it says he was beaten up he's half dead they've stripped him all of his clothes he's lying naked and so the question is who is this man beaten up on the side of the road that by jesus definition is my neighbor by jesus definition that's who i'm stopped supposed to love who is that man well the first thing that cries out to us it's somebody that needs help i mean this guy needed help he's lying there half dead and if somebody doesn't help him he's probably going to die Who is my neighbor? Well, the first thing that we realize is my neighbor, by the Jesus definition, is somebody that needs help. 
So right quickly, in your own mind, start thinking about who do you know that needs help? That, my sisters and brothers, is our neighbor. Now, not only that, he's somebody that nobody wanted to help. I mean, come on. If you're laying down someplace, don't you want Pastor Mike or, or Brad or, or, or Garth or somebody like that to come by? Wouldn't you like them to come by? Well, if they came by, they weren't going to help you. The priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. The man beaten up on the side of the road. A second characteristic is he's somebody that nobody wanted to help. Even the priest and the Levite, the pastor and the elder, didn't want to stop and help him. Who is my neighbor? The Jesus definition is my neighbor is somebody that nobody wants to help. I bet you know somebody like that. Could be a mental illness. Could be that that you've helped them a million times and they still don't get it right. Jesus doesn't say to stop helping. A third, a third idea might be not only does he need help, not only is he somebody that, that uh, uh, nobody wants to help, but he's somebody that can't help himself. Man beaten up on the side of the road. The, Bible, the text says he's laying there, he's half dead, he's unconscious, he's bleeding, he's got wounds. He could not help himself. One of the biggest excuses I hear of people that aren't going to help somebody is that I'm not going to help them because they just won't help themselves. You know what? Sometimes people can't help themselves. My neighbor is that person that we know that can't help themselves. Who do you know right now that everybody else has given up on and that you know they can't help themselves? Maybe they're a drug addict. See, we got a house in Lawndale called Hope House. Hope House is for men just getting out of prison or men that have been strung out on drugs on the streets. John and Carl are both graduates of Hope House. Carl was in the streets for over a dozen years, strung out on drugs. John the same way. But through the power of Jesus Christ, they came into Hope House, turned their life around, committed their life to Jesus Christ, and he delivered them from that. Carl now owns his house, got married, two little boys. I mean, God has redeemed him. But Carl could not help himself. Who do you know that can't help themselves? That, Jesus says, is our neighbor. Oh, well, I know I'm probably way out of time, but I got, I'm going to at least give you, I got, I got you know, th- a lot more, but I'm going to give you at least one more for a moment. Who's the man beating up on the side of the road? He's, I'm going to give you two more, so just, just, and in a moment I might say three, but I'm going to give you two, all right? I'm thinking as I'm, I'm here. What, all right, this, the next one is, it's somebody, we live in this instant society, you know, have it your way, go to Burger King, quick, go to McDonald's, quick, you know, it's instant, we, 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 we turn on our computer, bam, we want it on fast, you know. So anyway, who's my neighbor? My neighbor's somebody that's going to take a little time to help. You know, it's not a quick fix. There, there, I don't, there's not too many people who need your help or my help that it's a quick fix. It's going to be a, often a lifelong one. Did you notice in the text what happened when John was reading it? It said, it said that when the Samaritan came and stopped, the Samaritan stopped. He was on a business trip. He stops. He gets down. He bandages up his wounds with wine and oil. That took a little time. He didn't just pat him on the back and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He got involved. And then he says it put him on his donkey and took him to the local inn and stayed with him. And you know what? If you read the text, it says, and the next day he went to the innkeeper and gave him some money. 
That means he spent the whole night. He delayed his business trip overnight, a whole day to be with him. My neighbor is somebody that is going to take my time to help them. It's not a quick fix. It's going to be a lifelong process often to help this person. Lastly, it's a person, a Samaritan helps a Jew. The man beaten up on the side of the road is Jewish. You all know from Scripture and from your teachings here at the church, at Christ Church, you know that Jews hated Samaritans. If it was reversed, that's what makes this story so dramatic in how Jesus tells it. If it was a Samaritan laying on the road, I doubt the Jew would have stopped. Because Samaritans hated Jews. They would always go anything they could to avoid that relationship. And, 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 a, and a Samaritan a Samaritan was a, a, a mixed race person. And it was also, they worshipped a different religion. So my, my, my neighbor is somebody that's of a different race and of a different religion. Now race... Whether we want to admit it or not, we've got a pretty big race problem in America. The University of Chicago does a study every year, and you know what they come back with? I've, I've read this study, you know, a couple dozen times, and every year it comes back the same. Prejudice is based on color of skin in America. In, in my neighborhood, they say if you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. But if you're black, get back. That's but the University of Chicago comes to a conclusion every year. It makes it dramatic. My neighbor, see, we live in segregated communities. Let's be honest about it. We live in segregated communities by race, but we also live by them our economics, education. You know, this is a neighborhood, almost everybody has a college degree, and over here almost nobody has a college degree. You know, we live by that. We live in, we live in segregated communities economically. I mean, I've never seen a $3 million house built next to a $25,000 house. You see, what we've done is we've separated ourselves. And race is one of those segregations. My neighbor, we've got to break down the racial barriers that are here. So wonderful to be in a church today that is striving to do that. I mean, that, that's, that's why I'm here. If I didn't think there was hope for you, I wouldn't be here at Christ Church. I believe you want to break down the race barriers. I believe you brought the ministers here and Ratliff here to do a little singing with us here because you want to break that down. But we can't stop with just a nice little church service that we sing Kumbaya and everything's great because everything ain't great. It was one week ago today we recognized again the race problem we have in America. Trayvon Martin. Here is a young African-American teenager. Oh, everybody's talking about Zimmerman got off free. That's not the tragedy of the story, friends. The tragedy of this story is a teenage boy's life was taken. I've read the 911 tapes. This should have never happened. Zimmerman called 911. Here's a young teenage boy with iced tea and Skittles in his hand going to see his father. Zimmerman calls the 911 and says, there's a suspicious guy. And the, and the 911 says, what's suspicious? Is he doing any suspicious things? He, Zimmerman answered, no. Is he with a gang of kids? No. Is he doing anything? No. The 911 tape said, do not follow him. But he didn't. President Obama, I'm glad he came out this week, a couple days ago, and said, you know what? 
the tragedy of Trayvon Martin is that that could have been me. That could have been my son. There is not an African-American man in America that has not been racially profiled and had a problem. Now, as white people, it's sometimes hard for us to understand that. But as Christians and as Christ followers, we're called. We're called to love our neighbor. And my neighbor is somebody of a different race. And I've called to do what I can do. And that's what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that prayer, we're saying we want our little church, we want this church that we're worshiping in to look and reflect the kingdom of God. We want it to reflect what heaven is going to look like. And let me tell you, friends, most of heaven will not be white. There are going to be more people of color in heaven than there will be white people. I wish somebody would say amen to that one, all right? Even if you're white, you know that the white race is so much smaller than people of color. Asians, Latinos, African Americans, Africa. I mean, come on. So what, when we pray that prayer, you know what we're praying? We're saying, God, help us, our church, to reflect heaven on earth. And in order for it to do that, We've got to break down these racial barriers. Oh, I've only scratched the surface, my friends. But I believe that God has called you, as he's called me, to make a difference in this world. Rick Warren wrote a book. I love his book, Purpose Driven Life. We read it as a church. But if you haven't read it, you don't even need to. I'll tell you. I'll save you 20 bucks. All right? Because it's the number two selling book in the history of the world. And it's all about people want to find their purpose. Purpose-driven life. What's my purpose in life? Well, you know what Rick Warren says? First line in the book. I, I paraphrase it into the Lawndale version. It ain't about you. The actual words are, it's not about you. Your purpose, my purpose in life is not about us. It's about Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My friends at Christ Church of Lake Forest, God is calling you and me to love him with everything we have and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we've got a little bit of a snidbit of who that neighbor is as we study this. Please continue your study. Hey, God, thanks for this day. Thanks for your love. Thanks for all you're doing in our lives. Lord, we fall so short. I mean, here I'm preaching this God, and I'm not doing it all the time. Forgive me and help me to live the Jesus definition. Help me to love my neighbor as I love you, Lord, and as I love myself. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.